all corporations should become you know, more responsible and more sustainable. And uh, many of them we are seeing that are doing climate pledges. Well, we call it carbon mathematics. Um, you have to find a way that um, the emissions of a process are less than the amount of embodied or sequestered carbon dioxide. You talked a little bit about cork carbon removable certificates. What are they? It's a unit. It represents uh, one ton of CO2 removed from circulation. NVIDIA, uh, one thing about the registry is that everybody can look at this registry and see what has been issued and which corporation has bought our CO2 removal certificates. Welcome to Mindful Businesses, presented by Sarani, and I'm your host, Vidya Ayer. In our podcast, we bring to you brands that are mindful in their practices and processes. A mindful business adopts and employs sustainable social, economic, and environmental practices. Today, we have with us Helba Horta, Head of Communications, and Tibiba Bainen, CEO at Puro Earth, Carbon Removal Standards. Welcome, Elba and Ante, and I apologize in advance for if I mispronounced your name. No worries. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Vidya. Thank you, Vidya. Elba and Ante join us from Helsinki, Finland. Welcome, both of you. In the book written by John Doerr, uh, Speed and Scale, he talks about the contributors to the greenhouse gases by sector. So he estimates in 2019, around 59 gigatons were put out in the atmosphere. And the largest was well, the industry, the manufacturing, the transportation and agriculture. He talked about reducing the carbon that each of these sectors put out into the atmosphere. But another way to reduce carbon in the atmosphere is by carbon removal technology, right? And it's good to state that um, it is uh, first and foremost important thing is to reduce the emissions. Of course, that is every single, all of our own responsibility. Every single one of us can reduce our emissions immediately and continuously. I've done it. You've done it. We all should do it. Concentrate, you know, measure our emissions and then identify the places where we can reduce them. Unfortunately, it is inevitable that there will be some residual emissions and those we need to remove. How is carbon removal different than carbon credits? In a way, carbon removal is um, a form of a carbon credit. But if we look at the traditional carbon markets, typically the carbon credits have been based on emission avoidance. So uh, in a way, companies and organizations and entities that have bought these carbon credits have outsourced their emission reductions to somebody else. And in this post-Paris Accord world, that is no longer acceptable. As I said, uh, everybody needs to reduce their own emissions to the extent possible. They have to take personal responsibility. Personal, your municipality has to reduce their emissions, your country has to reduce their emissions, your workplace has to reduce their emissions, your continent has to reduce their emissions and so forth. It is everybody's responsibility to do that. Now, carbon removal is a, in a way a carbon credit that just represents a one ton of CO2 taken away from circulation. Coming back to the point about each person's responsibility, say we take the manufacturing industry, 
or any business, they have to look into their scope one, scope two, scope three emissions. Can you talk a little bit about what is scope one, scope two and scope three? Yeah, like you said, Vidya, all corporations should become you know, more responsible and more sustainable. And uh, many of them we are seeing that are doing climate pledges you know, to become carbon neutral, to become carbon net zero. And there are some steps that they take. So, for example, they first reduce as much as possible within their own operations, which is the scope one. And then they reduce down the line into their own supply chain. And then they reduce over to where they have effect all the way down to their product and where their product goes to. So all of those scopes need to be calculated as to what is the carbon footprint in them. And then the company should, first of all, do a program of reductions. And then if it's not possible to reduce something, then they should remove from the atmosphere. And how do they do that? Well, they can compensate by buying carbon credits, as you mentioned. They can also be part of helping to produce new carbon removals because these are technologies that are still very much in the infancy stages. Many of them need money to be able to build the infrastructure needed if they are small and starting to expand their operations. So the corporations should be investing in those companies, in those projects, so that later on they can buy carbon credits from them to be able to compensate for the corporate carbon emissions. So it's sort of, you know, chicken and egg problem at the moment that the corporations are needing to compensate for the carbon emissions, but there's not enough carbon removals out there. So we need to start scaling this industry. And um, one of the ways that can be done is through this compensation, through carbon credits or through investing into the projects. So how can an individual, a consumer, influence corporations to remove their carbon emissions on a micro level if you start talking? Yeah, I mean, any employee can influence their company, right? I mean, first of all, apply to work at a company that is sustainable. And if you're already in a company, you can talk to the management and say, hey, you know, shouldn't we have a sustainability approach to how we work? Um, should we change our business model? We should look for opportunities to reduce our emissions in all parts of the business. And also, as a consumer, you can start sponsoring companies who make products that are carbon neutral or that somehow are helping that have these other benefits, social and environmental benefits. So I think that consumers have a lot of power and employees do to advocating for better and more sustainable corporations. When we talk about carbon credit and carbon removal technologies, we are talking about the voluntary carbon market? That's correct, yes. So explain to our listeners, what is a voluntary carbon market? 
First of all, I think it would be good to define what is a, let's say, non-voluntary, that means a sort of a compliance market. In multiple regions, businesses that belong to emission trading system of some sort. And um, these sectors, industry sectors, are typically the ones that uh, pollute the most. Companies that uh, generate energy, maybe working in, uh, let's say, uh, construction, sort of uh, all everything that is uh, producing mining or you know any metals, those are typically within these sectors. And um, they need to buy emission allowances, which is a weird concept altogether. Who gives the allowance to pollute, I think, is, is an interesting question mark. True. Yeah, the voluntary side is then all the others. So that do not belong into these mandated or compliance markets. And uh, there the companies have realized that, um, you know, sustainable business practices uh, can be a source of competitive advantage. Yeah, and that's why they want to contribute to the climate and other social and environmental topics in a way that they want to minimize the negative impact. So what is the economic benefit for the corporation? Like you said, and it's a bottom line, like Milton Friedman said, the businesses are in the business of making money. So they won't do it, right? Otherwise, it's a nonprofit or a government and agency. What is the benefit? What does the economic benefit to them? Well, I think that at this point, when the markets are seeing a lot more pressure from consumers and from governments and from regulators, and just because we, we know that the science is there, that we have to be able to reverse this global warming that is happening. I think that that's enough for a business to say, okay, there's going to be some risks in the future for my business, for actually for what I do, and they need to mitigate those. We're seeing that in the finance sector, companies like BlackRock, you know, announcing that if you don't have sustainability in your core business, you will not have finance for your business. So there is now more and more of this reality coming to the corporate world. This is why the whole ESG, environmental and social governance, ratings, porting, all of that is growing within the corporate world because I think it's just coming to a point where it is unavoidable. We must already start mitigating for climate risks or the business is not going to survive. So Mindful Businesses has been podcasting since June of 2019. And I've seen the change. When in 2019, I would talk to people, it would be like recyclable straws or, you know, when you take your milk jugs. And now it's literally every two weeks there are concepts which are getting attention. They're coming to the center. For instance, your concept, your business of carbon removal. We've had actually a couple of guests. I don't know if you had a chance to listen. Carbon8 and um, Ferroc. Okay, Carbon8, we know very well. They talk about during the process of manufacturing, absorbing the carbon to reduce, prevent it from even getting out, right? And then use it, in case of Carbon8, as aggregates for construction. These are concepts which literally every couple of weeks they probably were there 20, 30 years ago, but they all the importance and the seriousness of climate change is so imminent that people are 
now putting their investment and their energies in these technologies. But there's so much innovation taking place at the moment in the world, and we are exposed to quite a lot of it. So we are working together with uh, XPRIZE, for example, organization that has uh, set up this uh, challenge for you know, removing a gigaton of, uh, or a billion tons of CO2 from the atmosphere. How do they plan to do that? Well, that's the whole point. There's a challenge, which means uh, there's a price at the end of it. The best, um, the team that is deemed to be the best will get a uh, hundred million dollar reward or price. And uh, of course, there are now, there have been hundreds of very serious teams out of which 60 have been selected to be finalists in a way. Yeah, so we've been helping XPRIZE to evaluate. We've given our expert opinion on some of those teams. And of course, we are offering them the opportunity to monetize their negative emissions along the way. So you are evaluating the carbon net technologies, which will help carbon removal and for this competition, right? Yes, our team members have acted as expert reviewers. That is correct, yes. How do you review it? Like, what is the process? Because it's still fairly new. What are the standards that you're looking for? Well, we call it carbon mathematics. Okay. It's boiling down to physics and chemistry and just regular logic that uh, you have to find a way that um, the emissions of a process are less than the amount of embodied or sequestered carbon dioxide. That's the simple equation. And the teams need to be able to demonstrate or, you know, the suppliers of negative emissions in our ecosystem every day. They need to be able to demonstrate that not only to us, but the independent third party verifiers that actually make sure that uh, their claims are true. How do the independent party verifiers verify that the claims are true? How do you believe the information that's provided to you? Well, we've tried to reinvent the wheel as little as possible. These are ancient or age-old practices uh, that we rely on, although applied in a new manner to a new process. But um, it's still the same approach that we require certain things from this supplier of negative emissions or a potential cork or CO2 removal certificate supplier. This is a list of requirements and uh, they need to send the evidence initially to us. We will do a initial review that everything makes sense. And then that will be sent over to this third party verifier that will then, you know, make a site visit and uh, make a you know, million difficult questions uh, and make sure that all of it is indeed true. But I can add here that um, if they are saying that, um, say, there's a producer of biochar. Biochar is a substance that contains more carbon dioxide or carbon than the production of it generates. This um, process of creating biochar creates many data points from sourcing of the feedstock, you know, the delivery of the feedstock coming in, the drying of the feedstock or processing it otherwise, the actual pyrolysis uh, thing, selling of it and delivery of it. All of these leave a data point that the verifier that can then make sure that they are aligned and they stack up and make sense and back up the claims made by the supplier. So these regulations or compliance requirements need to balance it should be able to verify, but at the same time, not be a hindrance for somebody to comply. How do you balance that, right? First and foremost, everything is, you know, up to the fact that um, it has to be carbon negative. Otherwise, don't bother. 
And actually, via the verification process that these carbon removal suppliers have to go through actually provides them an opportunity to become better, to become more efficient, to actually even lower their carbon footprint, make the operations even more negative. So when a verifier goes there and says, well, you should be doing a part of your manufacturing process or a part of where you're getting your raw materials, that they're giving them tips all the time on how can you improve it so that your carbon footprint is even less every time. So what we see is that the verification process is helping these suppliers to remove even more carbon from the atmosphere. So who pays for this verification, the company themselves? That would be the normal way in typical carbon value chains. But um, in our case, uh, Puro Earth uh, pays for that uh, verification. So we know we have um, sort of um, you know high quality. You control it in that way. Yeah, well, the thing is, um, the verifiers are, you know, a tight resource, let's put it this way. They are not too many of them and um, they are very busy and uh, they are quite expensive. We've wanted to make uh, our ecosystem a very inclusive so that um, all suppliers can enter just as long as they, you know, fulfill the requirements. And um, we pay for the verification. And um, of course, uh, then we charge our service fee once uh, they start to be able to monetize their the negative emissions or the certificates. You touched upon biochar as one of the carbon net technologies. What are the others? Could you name a few examples? Something which I can, in my everyday life, do it. Not something like what Carbonate does, which is industry level, but something else like which I can relate to. Well, maybe first we can talk a little bit about biochar because I think that that is something that people can relate to. Biochar is very similar to charcoal and it comes, for example, agricultural waste streams, forestry waste streams that would otherwise be incinerated. They would go back to the atmosphere. In other words, the CO2 contained there would go back to the atmosphere. But then when these residues are actually pyrolyzed, which is the process of carbonizing them without oxygen so that the carbon molecule stays and the carbon content stays, then that biochar, which looks like charcoal, it's very stable and it's also a very porous substance. And that can then be used in, for example, agricultural applications. So you can use it in your gardening. It can be used for regenerative agriculture because it is so porous that it retains a lot of water and then microorganisms can live in those uh, pores. And so it actually increases the nutrient content of the soils. Another thing is that it will reduce the use of chemical fertilizers, which means that we will have healthier food. So actually for the consumers, biochar is a really interesting thing. And then uh, we have other methods, for example, biomass-based construction elements or wooden building elements, we call them. And that just means, you know, from a certified sustainable forestry operation, those trees are that have captured CO2, they are then converted into building elements. So for an actual, for a house, for a school, for a building that will stay for many decades and that carbon will remain there captured and stored. We also have other types of wooden building elements like insulation for buildings. 
How about traditional ones like Amazon, you know, or I recently started hearing about peatlands in the Congo. It's all about the storage and the stability and permanence of the storage in our framework. And uh, the forests are really great at capturing CO2, but they are not necessarily the most stable way of storing it for a long, long period of time. That's why in our framework, we concentrate on various ways of capturing then stabilizing it and then storing it. These three distinct phases that uh, need to be identified. So afforestation is really good for the planet, but it's um, not necessarily great storage. As we know, there are areas where there's a lot of wildfires, pests, um, you know, all kinds of forest uh, risks are there inherent um, in most areas. And that's why we would like to sort of uh, base our framework on processes where the CO2 is stored in a secure manner. In forests, it could be, you always run the risk of it being cut down. Exactly. We've seen as regimes uh, change, for example, in Brazil, you know, suddenly protected forests are no longer protected. We've seen in the US the wildfires and, uh, you know, all across the globe, actually. Now that temperatures are rising, it's becoming less secure storage. I was going to say, Vidya, that, you know, other methods, of course, are going to be carbonated materials for buildings. So concrete without cement in other words, and using CO to build even stronger buildings. And then as the technologies continue to develop, there is, of course, direct air capture and its subsequent, you know, the CO2 that is captured, injected back into a geological formation. And that would be a permanent removal as well. I think that's what one of our guests, Pran, does. He captures carbon from the air and he partners with another company which makes tiles. And that company's name is Carbon Capture and they use those tiles for a home. And these two are working together. And uh, that's a great example of how two different companies can add value and remove carbon and sequester it permanently. I was going to say, Vidya, that another thing is the economic impact that this will have. Would you like to elaborate a little bit more? Elba, um, Ante spoke a little bit, but if you would like to add some more. Of course, our mission is to make sure that carbon negative emissions actually get incentivized and that we change the economy. So as more and more of these carbon removal methods become you know, more technically feasible and entrepreneurs enter the market with them, we know that our economy will change and it will be a greener economy. So, you know, carbon removal in terms of the carbon markets, that's also going to move and accelerate carbon removal across you know, many industries, which will help decarbonize many sectors of the economy. For us, that's really important that we will have not just a climate impact, but you know, that change in the economy, so an economic impact. If you understand what exactly Puro Earth does, it finds these technologies, finds people who are willing and wanting to sequester or get carbon credits or remove carbon, their impact on the carbon that they put out because of their business activity. And you work as the go-in-between. Who pays for this? For the moment, majority of our customers are the sort of the pioneers, um, the most climate mature organizations um, in the world. For instance? Companies like um, Microsoft and um, Swiss Re, 
Zurich. Typically, organizations in the technology, software, finance fields uh, where there are, you know, relatively high sales margins and uh, relatively low emissions, let's say, dollar of generated revenue. So uh, they can afford to be the pioneers, but they are paving the way. They are now pushing these um, technologies and these companies towards the economies of scale type of uh, development where more scale uh, means less cost than other companies uh, can make use of the knowledge that they've gathered and they are actively sharing it, uh, their experiences on these uh, purchases. And then, of course, these companies can serve not only these original buyers, but also eventually many others. But how much do they pay per unit? Well, quite a bit more at the moment than you would find in many other sort of completely nature-based credits. So there is a premium, but then again, I think the payback uh, for many of them is security in the permanence or the duration of the carbon removal. So how long will the carbon be sequestered in your solutions, in the technologies that you are partnering with? At the moment, the the academia seems to categorize uh, carbon removal into three broad categories. The temporary category is between 50 to 100 years. Sub-permanent is between 100 and 10,000 years. And then permanent is 10,000 years and more. And uh, we've got, you know, our methodologies at the moment cover all these three categories at the moment. It is likely that the activity will concentrate towards uh, this sub-permanent and permanent in the future. And it will be sort of by 2050, it's going to be more or less all permanent. I would want it to be permanent. Why would I pick a sub-permanent or shorter term solution? Is it the technology is harder to come by or it's more expensive? I think uh, there is no silver bullet for climate crisis and um, therefore we need to you know use all the possible means that are available at the moment the ones that are easier you know we have easier access to as of humankind are typically subpermanent or even temporary so it's just we need to start where there's something to start with and then develop the the more permanent solutions along the way as we say sustainability is a journey and we all are on our path hopefully yeah to a better and sustainable future You talked a little bit about Cork Carbon Removable Certificates. What are they? It's a unit. It represents uh, one ton of CO2 removed from circulation for this duration that uh, it depends on the category, how it is created. But it's a digital tradable asset that lives in a registry. It's a digital database, basically. Keeps track of, um, you know, when it is issued. What is it based on? Where it was generated? When it was generated? And who was the verifier? who is the current owner and, uh, you know, when it is retired. And only at the end of the life cycle, after it's been retired, can the owner claim the climate benefit represented by that cork. It's just a token that uh, carries the climate benefit uh, throughout the life cycle. So these verifiers will use servers. So would it kind of be contradictory? Because the verifiers have to verify. If I'm thinking about your solution, similar to the NFTs, and there's so much talk about Mm -hmm. the amount of energy that they are using, would your carbon removal certificate digital log need that amount of energy consumption to verify it every time it's traded or every step? When we started in 2018, one of the first things that we uh, you know, said after coming up with this concept, we said, ah, blockchain, we have to build this in blockchain. 
After uh, you know, considering the challenge, uh, we realized that the bigger challenge is in fact making sure that the data that goes into the system is of high quality, you know, assuring the integrity of the uh, data beyond normal bank grade sort of encryption and uh, you know, bank grade security in all levels. So we felt that um, you know there's too much sort of technology focus um, in here while most of the work needs to happen in the front end in the beginning of the origination of the carbon credit. We said to ourselves at the time that uh, you know when somebody comes up and says that okay now we've cleared the beginning now we need to make sure that the the database uh, which is encrypted and you know fully secured needs to be even better so that we can assure you know uh, that there's immutability and so forth then we'll do that and the time you know is soon upon us you know we are also considering to change to uh, blockchain but it is for sure that uh, of course if we were to go there we would select the technology that does not consume awful lot of energy the problem is because it's a voluntary market right say you had a quasi instead of the world bank say you had for carbon sequestering a bank or a bureaucracy a small one at that which would kind of monitor this maybe that would be an easy way for verification a more consistent way across the globe for verification yeah although verification typically actually requires a person traveling on site looking with their own eyes you know making sure that uh, you know it's not illusion uh, it's very practical in a way that people have to do that but i was talking about the digital certificate verification oh well, yes yeah that's right yeah i think uh, blockchain can be a good part of the solution for sure so recently your company partnered with nasdaq we've uh, received an investment from the corporate venture capital arm of nasdaq corporation or the yeah limited liability company you know we could have received funding from similarly uh, from any other corporate venture capital organization or even just a regular venture capital organization yeah nasdaq is a credible of course a company that knows a thing or two about marketplaces uh, for sure and of course since we also operate the marketplace i think uh, it is a very good strategic investor for us There are several companies which that do what you do carbon removal but you have a standard talk about the puro standard yeah i think the good starting point is that we wanted to establish a marketplace but uh, since um, there weren't any sort of carbon removal credits at the time we had basically two options either we'd try to convince the incumbents of the carbon markets to see the world our way and that would mean sitting in the committees for the next 2 or 3 years or we just try and do it ourselves. Of obviously we chose the latter one because it was just more fun. That meant that, you know, establishing a new certificate would require the registry where that sits. That would require an issuing body to issue those certificates into the registry. That would require a verifier infrastructure to actually make sure that the the claims are right. That would mean that the claims need to be defined in the methodologies, sort of the general rules of the standard. And that would mean that we would have to have a advisory board underneath that uh, sort of accepts uh, those methodologies and rules and that would mean that we need to establish a business operation that uh, sort of sits underneath this whole pyramid of uh, things so there are basically three components to your business right first find the carbon negative technologies then you have to verify them connect them with the people who need these and value it and make sure that they are sequestered and removed and stored for eternity and right now since it's still pretty novel really the firms that you mentioned who have 
deeper pockets, larger margins, and of course, the interest in becoming sustainable are the ones who are who work with you. When will it trickle down to the smaller businesses who say, because right now, if you look at some of the EcoCart and some other people, you can literally put it on your checkout. It's like a glue, what a Chrome extension. When will your business model be accessible to a small firm with, say, 10 employees? Yeah, it's already there. In a way, you could consider us to be the wholesaler. And then we have retailers that buy from us and sell to smaller companies and individuals. Over half of our sales are actually at the moment indirect, which means that there are companies that, uh, for example, calculate the carbon footprint of another company and then uh, advise them how to reduce the carbon footprint and then help them remove the rest. And your registry makes sure that the same certificate is not sold twice. Yes, correct. So it provides the transparency. And do you have continued audits of the suppliers? Yes. NVIDIA, uh, one thing about the registry is that everybody can look at this registry and see what has been issued and which corporation has bought our CO2 removal certificates. So any individual from the public can go to registry.puro.earth and see, you know, Microsoft has made, you know, a claim that they have used carbon removal and they can just type in the search field Microsoft and you be able to see exactly which carbon removal suppliers has Microsoft bought from and how much. So how many tons have they really compensated? And like that with any company who has made it public that they have bought carbon removal from Pudo Earth or from the Pudo Standard, it's completely available there. It's uh, really transparent. I mean, the idea is that any stakeholder can see, okay, this company says that they have removed carbon and that the carbon is somewhere stored. Let me check where is this carbon stored? And they can just go to the registry and find out. In fact, that's what I did. I went to your website and I was looking. It's like anybody can, it's very, very accessible, which is what I liked about the transparency and how it's easy for with just a click of a button to be able to look at your registry. So how has the NASDAQ investment helped you grow, help Puro Earth grow? Well, in the last year, we've had a lot of growth. Of course, you know, having had NASDAQ put us in other people's radar, let's say. One of the things that we have done was develop the pre-cork framework. And uh, so cork is a CO2 removal certificate. A pre-cork, it's an offtake agreement. So that means that very early stage projects can get funded by a corporation so that in the future they would create uh, issue corks. You know, first they need perhaps a prepayment, an amount of money to be able to start their operations to, you know, if it's a biochar plant, to be able to open that biochar plant. And so that first amount of money that they would need comes from offtake agreements. So that has been one thing that we've been able to develop. You can see in our website or, or look for the pre-cork framework information. We've also put the registry out into the public. So we've always had a registry, but it did not have this front end available to the public. And now we have been able to do that. And another big thing is also that we've created, along with NASDAQ, the first carbon removal indexes. So the market can see what is the price of carbon removal credits. 
what have they been selling for in the last since we started operations in 2019. So then investors, corporations, regulators, they can see what is actually the cost of removing your emissions. And so the indexes also have generated for us a, a lot of attention and hopefully that means that we've now contributed to the growth of the voluntary carbon removal market. On that note, wishing you all the best. I hope to see you guys in a couple of years to see what more changes and what more progress has been made in this field. Thank you so much, Alba and Antje, for coming on Mindful Businesses. Thank you. Thank you, Vidya. It was really a pleasure. Thank you again. Um, you're listening to Mindful Businesses, hosted and produced by Vidya Iyer. We'd love to hear from you. Send a voice note with your questions or comments to info at mindfulbusinessespodcast.com. Subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. If you learned a thing or two from this episode, share it with one friend. We recorded this podcast in Lafayette, Indiana. Theme music composed by Tatum Gale. Our marketing assistant is Caitlin Milligan. Our advisors are Jim Stone and Anupama Pashricha. This is Vidya Iyer with Mindful Businesses.